Warning. The Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, faithful, trusty, tireless, relentless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. How are you, people? Thanks for showing up. So glad to see you. Uh, I do this for you. It's all about you. If it wasn't for you, well, I'd just be here alone talking to myself, and that would just be sad. So I'm so grateful that you're back with me here again today. Thanks for coming through. want to tell you about today's episode. We have an amazing husband and wife team, director and producer, Brian Vincent and Heather Spohr. We're going to talk about their new documentary, Make Me Famous, about the artist Edward Brzezinski. So stay tuned for that because it's a super cool movie and a very great conversation. But before we get into it, I want to of course, tell you to go to notrealart.com and check out all the good, healthy stuff we got for you there. If you're an artist, our 2024 artist grant is open. So submit today for the chance to win $2,000 and thousands more in marketing and promotional support. There'll be six winners. So you could be one of them. So go to notrealart.com and apply today. Don't wait. You can't win if you don't play. So please come through and submit today. So what else at notrealart.com? We have amazing artists and artwork for you to discover and learn about. Please check it out. The Q plus art series is wonderful. Also want to encourage you to check out remote the new video story series. We're producing with the one and only Badir McCleary. And Badir is taking us on a journey of public art, not just across America, but around the world and talking about what public art means in their space and in their community. So check it out. Go to notrealart.com and look for remote. Okay. Man, oh man, I love today's episode. I had such a great time talking to the husband and wife team, Brian Vincent and Heather Spore. Brian directed this documentary and Heather produced it. And it is a biographical documentary that explores the life and work of a painter named Edward Brzezinski in his quest for fame. And it sort of shines a light on a very special time in New York in the sort of grimy Manhattan of the 70s and 80s. And a lot of really great footage, archival footage, video footage shot by folks who were there in the scene back in those days and in the East Village there. And so it's a real window into a world that most of us were not a part of. And so you're getting a real sense of what it meant to be an artist in those days in the East Village in the 80s. And then it was a bit of a mystery to the movie as well. You know, what happened to Edward Brzezinski? Where did he end up? Did he ever find the fame? that uh, he sought. And so this documentary 
does a great job of telling Edward's story and telling the story of that special time in New York and in the East Village in the 80s. So be sure to watch the movie, Make Me Famous. Google it today. Go to Google, type in Make Me Famous, the movie, and it'll pop up and check it out. But I just so love sitting down with Brian and Heather. I got a chance to see the movie at a screening here in LA and was just so delighted and asked them if they would do me the honor to come in and talk about their project with me. And they were gracious and generous enough to do that. So without further ado, let's get into this wonderful conversation I had with Brian Vincent, director and Heather Spohr, producer of Make Me Famous, the movie. Go watch it, people, and let's get into this conversation. Brian and Heather, welcome to Not Real Art. Hi, nice to be here, Scott. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, oh my goodness. Well, you know, you guys are classing up the joint, so this is the honor is all mine. <laughs> so grateful to have you. You know, we met so briefly, and Brian, I, you and I met briefly at your showing here in LA. Heather and I chatted for a little while, but I didn't, I don't think I really got a chance, Brian, to tell you personally how much I enjoyed your documentary. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Yeah, it was such a delight. You know, Make Me Famous, your documentary about Edward Brzezinski and it was so interesting. I guess he sort of came out of a time when people like Warhol were talking about everybody's going to have their 15 minutes and here he is wanting to be famous. And we live in a time now where fame is so commoditized. I, I think, you know, we're all kind of, of maybe the same. I don't know about you. I'm Gen X. And, you know, when I came up, those those surveys would come out, right, where they would ask kids, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the answers were always like astronaut, president things like this. And then recently, in recent years, that same survey came back. And the answer, I think, among the Gen Z, uh, maybe millennial as well, was number one answer was famous. They want to be famous when they grow up. And I thought, my God, <laughs> what would Edward do in this social media age? What do you think? Well, Edward, I think, would be famous already. Because everywhere Edward went, he had to stand up against some perceived hypocrisy and he'd do it in public and do it with anyone. And so everyone would be filming him. But the idea too, though, for Edward about being famous, I think is a little different than the way people see it now. Edward actually was asked to be on David Letterman after one of his incidents where he ate from a bag of donuts, Robert Gober was presenting as art. So he tried those donuts, but he didn't know that they were treated with resin. So off to the hospital he went. But David Letterman asked him to be on his show and he actually turned that down because he said he, he didn't want to be always known as this donut guy, which he already is. So it was a duality that these artists had. They both wanted to be famous and they also didn't want to look like they were selling out. So they had a different generational feeling about it. I think he would have chosen artist. Right. Well, you know, we're all products of our time, right? And it's like, you know, at that time in particular, legitimacy in the art world came from fame. And in some cases it still does, right? And, you know, like we still sort of live in that, that world of it's like, well, if you're not in a white cube gallery, you know, if you don't have an MFA from Yale, you're not legitimate you know, as an artist. And, you know, obviously that's incredibly unfair and not very democratic if you care about democratizing the arts. But yeah, no, it, 
it is really interesting to me the need and the hunger artists have for that sort of validation. It's also a commodity that an artist, just like an actor, could use, though, to get more work. And so when they're not famous and they're striving to be famous, it's also them just striving to get more work and to get uh, to be able to make a living at this thing. And since the golden nail is distributed very rarely, then there's a whole lot of hustle and bustle to try to get on that golden nail or to get famous. You know, it's true with actors. It's true with any performer. But artists in particular, I think, have a really difficult time adjusting mentally to that because their entire essence of what they've devoted their lives to is to sort of question everything. So fame got even bigger after Andy Warhol, right, in the art world. And then the art market decided that they wanted only famous artists, right? And then they could turn them into lots of money. So then you add money to the element of anybody who's putting anything to canvas and it's a combustible combination. But in the 1980s art world that Edward Brzezinski was coming up in, New York was broke and very few of these painters were going to become famous because they weren't even looking for the kind of art that these young people were doing. These young people weren't really interested in making, you know, they were interested in little wood things and earth works and stuff like that. And that was what the galleries wanted at that time. And so they ended up performing for each other, which ended up making them famous. Yeah. Well, I mean, on a certain level, they were outsiders, were they not? I mean, you know, the art they were making was outsider art in many ways, right? Because it, you know, wasn't particularly sellable or marketable. Galleries hadn't figured out how to monetize it, right? So, (laughs) So they were real rebels. Yeah, it's hard to get paid to eat a donut, right? (laughs) (laughs) But some of them figured it out. And it had to do with people like uh, Nina Nose, who was the one that discovered Basquiat. She did more than just discover him, though. She got him canvas. She got him paint. She invited him to live at her gallery and paint down in her lower level area. And she would replace his canvas that he would do during the day at night. And those are the works that sell for $100 million because there was somebody in between the artist making sure that he was doing it in a way that it could be preserved. I mean, Basquiat was painting on refrigerators, you know, before Anina. (laughs) Everything's a canvas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that worked for the Lower East Side people because everywhere was some interesting piece of trash they could draw on. (laughs) <laughs> found object art. <laughs> <You know? Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, I, I want to, you know, I want to drill deep, you know, into some of the challenges that you had as a, as a director, but Heather, you as producer, I mean, what a hell of a project to produce. I mean, chasing the cats, hurting the cats, all this archival footage, chasing this ghost, you know, this famous ghost, if you will, is he dead? Is he alive? Where's the body? I mean, talk a little bit, Heather, about how you got into producing documentaries and what what inspired you about this particular project? Well, I'm an actress. Brian and I are both actors. Brian went to Juilliard. Never heard of it. Juilliard. What? what? 
I was on Broadway with Wicked for 13 years. And unbeknownst to me, as an actor kind of spearheading their own entrepreneurial life as a performer, that is every single thing you need to do to be a producer. If you're good at corralling your own life as a performer, you probably might have the skills necessary to be a producer. So that's how I kind of dropped into this. Brian wanted to do a project. This started out as a play. And then it very quickly became a documentary when we found this archival footage. And when that happened, there was lots of clearances involved in it. And a lot of documentaries, you might notice they have one or two photos that they use over and over again, cycling through. And that's because every photo costs money. And in our film, Brian was very adamant that he wanted to use a a list of certain photos from the different photographers. And they were all different photographers. So there was going to be no bulk discount. I had to go to every single photographer and pitch the film to them, pitch what we were doing and try to get everything in our independent film budget, which was very little. So this was something that I did for years, just continually, because we have over 600 images of art and photographs from the era that helped tell the story of Make Me Famous. Right. So this project, I mean, you mentioned a few years. So how long of a timeline from start to finish? Five years? Well, we started shooting in 2015. And when did we wrap up? We wrapped the shooting in 2020, and it, we actually began the research of this in 2012. So this one took an awful long time, but it developed its story during that time. So you have that advantage going. And getting to know the artists is really what took three years. The gallery owners, the artists, they're not like actors. An actor, if you say, hey, I'm doing a project, they'll show up at your door the next day and ready for breakfast, you know, to talk about it. But the artists, they're not like that at all. Each of them is a journey unto themselves. Anina Nose, the gallerist who discovered Basquiat, she said she had a wonderful story about Edward Brzezinski, but she wanted to know what I knew. And I, and, and I said, well, what do I know? What, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, what's your thesis? And I kind of went over that. And then she assigned me books to read before we could talk again. So this was kind of the journey that we went on with this project. These artists, they're still showing and they're all in different various places in their career, but they all had the same attitude, which was get this right. Don't mess around with this. I'm tired of, of seeing this done wrong. This was a very important, authentic time where, you know, if you get this wrong and you mythologize it and romanticize it, then we're going to be pissed. So that's part of what took a long time. But also the artists, a few of them ended up pitching in and making art so that when you're watching the documentary in certain sections where there's not video of Brzezinski, they created the art to tell the story. So that was even more work for Heather to do there. (laughs) Having worked with artists myself over three decades, I fully empathize 
feel your pain, uh, I guess, <laughs> around <laughs> around that that process, right? Because it is about trust, building trust, building rapport, building credibility, right? My sister-in-law is an actor. And so I get exactly what you're saying, like about actors, like actors are like, yeah, let's go, let's do it. And visual artists, many, if not most, are incredibly cautious, it seems. And so that takes time, right? To sort of build that trust. Yeah, I mean, to a fault. Like, you can't believe that they're like this. While we were making the documentary, somewhere I think around 2016 or so, we found out that MoMA was planning to do a show about Club 57, which is a club that most of the artists in this movie helped in some way start or were a part of. And a few of these artists actually wouldn't meet with the curators. And we sort of figured out why, and then they ended up meeting with them. And the curators heard about our movie because we sent a little piece of our movie over to them with one of the artists and asked that, said they might be interested in Edward Brzezinski. But the artists were like, well, I'm not going to talk about Edward Brzezinski when I'm in meeting with the curators from MoMA, right? But one of them ended up doing that and they liked what they saw. We got to know them. And then they asked us, could you set up a meeting, for instance, with Richard Hamilton? Now, Richard Hamilton is known as the godfather of street art. He literally inspired Banksy. Um, The guy was famous for doing murder mysteries in the 70s. He was in magazines back then about street art, which was brand new then. Nobody knew what in the world this was. He ended up doing shadows on buildings in the 80s. And those ended up in like Scorsese movie and a lot of different movies and whatnot. But it was they were literally they were all over New York. And Richard Hamilton, he was such a reclusive person. We got to know him. We got to assist and work with him with paintings. And he told us about the 1980s. And then we set up a meeting with him and the curators at MoMA. And so again, this stuff took years to accomplish before they would talk. Well, Brian, Heather mentioned that this initially started as an idea for a play. So let's go back because I'm curious, like, well, A, how did Brzezinski even come onto your radar, into your consciousness for you to even think about the play? Take us back to those early days and, and how that evolved into the movie. Well, I'd read a book Cynthia Carr wrote about David Warnerovich. And David Warnerovich is now a very famous artist. He died in 92, but he was an AIDS activist and all this. But anyway, I read this book. I just got enthralled by the 1980s scene. And then Heather and I kind of looked around because she was she loved the art from the 80s, too. And we realized, wow, these people are still showing and stuff. So we were checking out their shows and stuff. And I was in between acting jobs and I was at a restaurant catering job. And I was talking to one of the waiters. His name is Lenny Kisco. And he told me that he had collected an artist all through the 1980s and that I should come over and check out the work. So I went over to his apartment at one point and he lives in this railroad apartment and very long. Well, that means that it's all one level, very long. And on every surface is a Brzezinski painting. And <laughs> the way he talked about Brzezinski, he was like Gollum with the ring. And the artwork was great. It was really amazing. Heather came over to look at it too. And, you know, he was painting Nancy Reagan and all this other stuff. We looked him up online and the only thing we could find out about was this donut and that he was in permanent collection 
in the Brooklyn Museum. And so we were intrigued. I wonder why this guy didn't get famous. We're both actors and we know the value of being famous in our profession. And I wonder what happened with this guy. So Lenny had his resume and he had some slides and things that Brzezinski had left with him because at one point he wanted Lenny to be his agent. (laughs) So we retraced this resume and that's when we really started meeting these uh, artists and they were all thrilled actually not to have someone approaching them about Keith Haring or Basquiat. And since it was a play that I was writing, I think they were more willing to sort of open up because everything they were saying was whether it'd make a play or not, they didn't know. But they, they sure liked the idea of, of talking about Edward, this person that they hadn't thought of in many years. And so that began an investigation for Heather and I. And that's when we stumbled on this 100 hours of archival that Jim C., this videographer, had made with Brzezinski, had sort of like encouraged him to come film his openings at his fifth floor walk-up apartment across from a men's shelter. And there was Miguel Pinero performing and just these incredible scenes of artwork and people milling in and out. Basquiat comes and visits. And that's when we knew we had a movie. Right. I mean, you guys discovered a treasure chest, right? Of gold coins. I mean, it's like, wow, you know, so I totally get that. You're like, well, no, no, no. Now this opens up all this new opportunity. And that was one of my questions because the archival footage primarily came from one source, right? Like there was part of me, I was a little unsure about that because, well, a couple of questions, like one is I was like, wow, it's amazing to me that these poor broke artists have a video camera, Right. Because those weren't cheap at that time. Right. So I guess what you're saying is this one gentleman who was a peer, a a friend, a a comrade, he was the guy with the camera and he just was that artist who was always filming. And I think here's where we give some props to Brzezinski, who's able to kind of shoot himself into 2023 by having the foresight to say to Jim C., this videographer, hey, you know, wouldn't it be great you could come film all of these things? And Jim C. was at the time, he was studying for his PhD in art history. And so he was beyond moved about the 1980s scene and he wanted to record it. And so he used his student loan money to buy a camera and the cameras back then, they were gigantic, right? <laughs> and, and, and it's really interesting to watch these hours that they filmed because people would react different back in the 80s than they do now. We're all used to a camera being around and we all act just sort of normal when one's around. But there's a a lot of minutes of people going up to the camera and making faces and and (laughs) they're staring at the TV that's close to it too, because they're seeing that it's in real time. And and so you have to pick and choose the moments where they're not doing that. It, It isn't easy to find. But so he had the smarts to say, hey, let's let's film this stuff. And Jim C had a lot of talent. I, you know, he was putting his camera in people's faces back then. And I think they probably weren't too happy about it, really. But now they are when they look back and they can see themselves and how attractive they were back then. And, and, and for us to be able to peer in there and see that scene. Well, so Heather, discovering that all that footage was one, I'm sure, of several aha moments or milestones in the production process. Tell us about another milestone surprise moment where 
you were just delighted or maybe horrified, <laughs> you know, of something like, oh my God, you know, this is a turning point for the project. Well, the Anina Nose interview was something that we had to chase for a year. So she did the interview with Brian for the play. And then she was testing him throughout to interview again. Yeah, vetting him. Yeah. Yeah. She wants to see if she can vouch for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, we had to chase her quite a bit to put her on camera. And when that happened, and after being in the interview process, I realized that this was a very special thing to have her. She was so charming and funny. And she took this incident that happened to her so in stride. I just thought she was a rock star. So that was one of them. There was a couple others, but maybe we shouldn't divulge too much information about the others (laughs) because it has to do with finding out what happened to Edward Brzezinski and how, where he ended up. Yes, it's a little bit of a whodunit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah investigation discovery pops in all of a sudden in a way. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, the impact, I mean, we're, you know, as artists, right? Like we're all focused on trying to have an impact culturally on some level, right? Uh, telling stories, whatever it happens to be, maybe helping other people tell their stories. So, you know, maybe if you're an actor or what have you, but you guys came to this particular medium inexperienced, right? Like as actors, had you ever made a film project before? I mean, as a producer, as a director, I mean, maybe as actors, you were on screen, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. I'd been in independent films and things and Heather's been on television and whatnot a little bit, but years ago I wanted to learn how to become a filmmaker. And I actually made a documentary, a very short one. I think it was 20 minutes about Wesley Clark running for president back then. And I never did a thing with it, but what I did was learn how to make it. And that documentary ended up becoming a comedy actually, (laughs) surprisingly, because his run for presidency didn't last very long. But I also, after that experience, I have a friend who owns a television studio and I told him I wanted to really learn how to be a filmmaker. So he hired me for a few years to make videos and things like that. And that's how, how I learned to edit and work with crews and lighting people and all this other stuff. And, and so that gave us the opportunity to take those skills and put them forward. But I think this is our first film. And so we get away with a little more because this DIY thing that was going on in the 80s really was about everybody pitches in and they make something and then they perform for each other, then they do it again the next week. So the idea that we were just making this whole thing from top to bottom was something that the 1980s artists, they all liked that. They were cool with that. And so I think that built a lot of trust with them that we were not going to pull a fast one on them like some of these other documentaries had done. Uh, Marcus Leatherdale was really angry after he did an interview about Maplethorpe. And so he felt that he'd been cut. The things that he had said hadn't really come through. So we had a lot of challenges, but we also had a lot of time to get it right. And we did what we knew. You know, Brian really grasped onto the storytelling and I did all the logistics. And after that, we brought it to a post house and we let the pros shine it up so it looks 
beautiful and spectacular. Our colorist is Stuart Griffin. He did the James Foley story. And, you know, we had some incredible artists on the back end, the post-production and the sound and our wonderful composer, Jeremiah Bornfield, who composed this really hip 80s new wave soundtrack, almost scoring the entire film. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, because what I what I love about this is, you know, having seen the doc, there is a very much a and I mean this in the best way. There is this very sort of handmade grassroots homespun kind of aesthetic to it. Right. But it's completely professional, <laughs> if that makes sense. Right. And I get that the scrappy model, right, the scrappy work ethic, you know, would resonate with these artists who have had to be scrappy their whole lives. Absolutely. Yeah. And many of them were filmmakers as well. And these artists, they work in a lot of different mediums. And in the 80s in particular, you had people who they were a videographer, but they're also an artist. They're an actor and they're a musician. And a lot of them, you know, from that their punk days, they didn't know how to play an instrument, right? So then they just got up and started playing. And then eventually they got good at it, you know, like Sonic Youth or whatever, you know, I mean... It just comes with that and they like that. So they like that we're actors. They like that we had all these different hats that we were wearing and they pitched in wherever they could too, as we got to know them better. Right, right. Heather, what kept Brian up at night during this project? Like, because by the way, we should mention, right? You got you guys are a husband and wife team. I don't know that we've actually pointed that out, right? It's hard enough sometimes to stay happily married when you're just, you know, working apart from one another, right? But then when you're working on a project together, that adds that much more stress. But, you know, here you are, a husband and wife making this movie, producer and director. Heather, when you had to put your producer's hat on and talk Brian down from the ledge because of some crises with the project, what were some of those pain points for Brian that you remember as producer? Well, I think, you know, the way documentaries are usually made, just to peek behind the curtain a bit, is by committee. Generally, you have an editor or an editing team and you have executive producers that all get to have their say and the director kind of has to maintain their vision as much as possible. And in fact, we had a lot of, you know, well-intentioned friends who would give us advice and they were like, you have to focus group this. This is how it's done, you know, and we didn't do it that way. We allowed Brian to have full creative control and I would put input in here and there to make sure he was going the right path and that it was all understandable because it's very dense. It's very intricate art history. But I think finding his voice in the edit was something that was really important to him. And I think even a few times I was like, come on, honey, like maybe we should do it the way everyone else is doing it. Like, let's maybe think about a story consultant or something. And he just was adamant that it needed to be this way. And I think that's why you get that DIY kind of chaotic thing that's happening in the edit, because that is what the era was about. And he knew the era from all the years of researching um, even better than I did. And he was right 
I'm going to say it. You were right to be adamant about that. By the way, you heard it here, people. First time. (laughs) It's a rare day. First time Heather ever told her her husband he was right. On camera. I love it. It's it's baked in. You can never deny it now. We are not cutting that part out. (laughs) I honestly, I was wrong. And I think, you know, I was well-intentioned to try to steer him towards the way the industry works. But it's a really much more special piece because it's not slickified, if that makes sense. It is what it was like. And I think a lot of executive producers would have pulled out certain moments because they didn't understand them. And Brian did understand always he understood the entire picture of what the film was going to be. It took a while to figure out what that structure was going to be. But I think once we honed in on the obituary being kind of the spine of the film, everything locked into place. Okay, so that's a really good setup for something that's been on my mind, which is like, because a friend of mine's a documentary filmmaker, and you know, he's talked about at least in his approach and with docs, you know, and storytelling set, you start thinking you're gonna tell one story and then you end up telling a complete another story because of course it's an investigative, journalistic almost kind of process of discovery. And, you know, sometimes you think you're going left when it turns out you discover a hundred hours of footage you didn't know, and then next thing you know, you're you're going right or whatever. And so, yeah, I mean, when you started this project, what story did you think you were going to tell? And then how many pivots do you think you had? Did you have more than one or did you have a couple different pivots until you finally realized the obituary was kind of your your North Star? There were probably thousands of pivots. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I could say that the, the first key one, though, when we started the project I thought that this was going to be a movie that challenged conceptual art with painting because in 2012, 13, 14, 15, all the galleries, all they really wanted to sell or show was conceptual art. And by that, I mean art that is very difficult to understand what in the world that means. And that was sort of the superfluous way that I was seeing it. So I was fixed of that thought, though, by some of these great artists, Richard Hambleton, for instance, he said, well, Brian, I don't make a painting without first conceptualizing it, right? And that's the most important ingredient. And I wouldn't think anything that I've ever done wouldn't be conceptual. So then we started to realize what a perfect career parallel that Brzezinski has with the very history of the rise and fall of the Lower East Side. His career is not bigger than the Lower East Side like Herrings would be would be, or Basquiat. You, you can't talk about them and then try to get in this history of the Lower East Side. But all of this film, it was so great that it came from the point of view of Brzezinski because then you could get a feeling of what this era was, which was what inspired us originally through the point of view of this amazing artist that was striving to become successful. And so that's when we realized that the movie could be about that 
And then, of course, with the shift in gears, when we realized that there was an obituary for Edward Brzezinski, but that he wasn't on the master death file. And so then we were traveling with the movie. We went to Berlin, we went to the Cote d'Azur, and all the while thinking, oh, gee, it's so good that a subject of ours would go to the places that you would want to go, right? (laughs) So the end of the process of discovery for What this movie really was going to be wasn't until we turned off the cameras after we went to the Cote d'Azur and finally figured out Brzezinski's story. Right. And you guys, there was a bit of a kerfuffle, right? When you were over there with, um, forgetting their names, uh, who you traveled with. Oh, Marguerite Van Cook and James Romberger. Yes. Right, right, right. So are you comfortable talking about that little uh, challenge you guys had there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, they were very close with Brzezinski. And there's always this challenge for Heather and I that we never met Brzezinski, of course. We were inspired by him and this scene. But also, I think it's worth saying that this movie is not meant to be a promo for Edward Brzezinski as if that he should be thought of as the next Jean-Michel Basquiat or something. It's to give you a feeling of being there with him. But James and Marguerite, are they're very of course, and they should be defensive of Edward and they represented him at his gallery. And so every little jab that these other artists give Edward, it really hurts them. And it's because everybody's, again, they're being authentic. But to them, of course, they were so close, in fact, that Brzezinski kept Marguerite's phone number on him at all times. And so when we were in the Cote d'Azur and we were searching for Edward, it was very personal and it, it was very intense and it everything changed. And that's why people should see this movie also to get a sense of something happening in real time that we didn't expect when we were filming as well. But I think that's about as much as I can say about that. Yeah, right. I mean, there's no way, right, you could have ever imagined that you would end up, (laughs) you know, where you ended up five years ago. And by the way, we will not reveal whether or not the body was found or not, because you got to watch the movie, people. Go see the movie. We're going to talk about where people can see the movie in a minute. But what do you think Edward would say about this movie? If how How do you think this movie, this project would make Edward feel if he were alive today to see it somehow? I think there's a big part of Edward that'd be saying, what took you all so long? <laughs> right. you know, it's about time, Ed- damn it. Yeah. Edward Brzezinski, you know, you know, he had a few flashes where he was right on the cusp there. And that's part of what makes his story exciting, I think. But I have to think that he'd be tremendously proud also that the body of his work can be seen and that it's being examined by... Yes, there were art historians during his lifetime that were writing about him. For instance, the editor of Art Forum, what's his name again? Not Robert Metzger, but... well, Joseph Maschick. Joseph Maschick, sorry. But very important people were thinking and writing about him. And here they come up again in the movie. And now they've had this perspective. And Robert Metzger, he's at the DIA and an ex-museum director. And so he's being examined by the world's best of his time and written about in, for instance, Art Forum just recently by Carlo McCormick, by the greatest art critic of the period. 
And so I just can't help but think that Brzezinski is smiling somewhere and, and maybe he'll uh, show up one of these screenings. <laughs> Indeed. Well, and by the way, congratulations on the art forum review or whatever. I mean, it was fantastic as far as I read it. I hope you guys are getting a, an amazing halo effect from that. Yeah, the audiences of the last couple of times we showed at the Roxy in New York City at the Roxy Cinema and New Plaza Cinema, they're just overflowing right now. <laughs> so we couldn't be more thankful for that. Oh, that's great. That's great. Heather, so looking back four, five, six years, if you could tell young Heather, <laughs> if you're a younger Heather, if you could give yourself advice, knowing what you know now, you know, four, five, six years ago, what advice would you have given yourself if you could, knowing what you know now? I wouldn't give myself any advice because if I knew now <laughs> that we, there would be a pandemic that we would, should have saved our money for, we probably wouldn't have this piece. And I'm thankful that we knew nothing. We didn't know what post-production cost. We didn't know how long it would take. We just jumped in with both feet. We were so inspired by what the artists were doing because that's what they were doing. Jumping in with both feet, grabbing stuff out of the trash, painting on it, creating a gallery. I'll do a gallery. Okay, I'm going to do that show with you. You're going to do that show with me. You're going to be the stage manager of Club 57. We're going to make this whole thing happen. Every night they had gallery shows and performances and poetry readings. And so I'm glad that we didn't look ahead to like the realistic, like what would happen later. Because also with our distribution, you know, we weren't really 100% happy with any of the offers that came our way. And so we just decided, well, we're going to do our distribution like the artists made their whole scene happen. So we're DIYing our theatrical distribution and it is not the normal run for a week in New York, one for a week in LA. We're going where the doors are being opened. We started in Toronto at the Hot Docs Cinema. We ran for two weeks there and then London got wind and we played at the ICA London as well as the Bertha Dock House, which we were held over for three weeks there. And everyone told me, don't open there. You can't do that. What about your Academy Award nomination? And we're like, well, you know, that's not really the purpose of this film. It's to get it out there. And we're going to go this unusual path, just like the artists did. And lo and behold, you know, coming out in New York was a dream for us. It took a lot of work. I don't know that New York would have said yes to curate us. They all want you to four wall your film. And we got curated in two theaters. And I, I'm not sure they would have done that without their stamp of approval from London and Toronto and the fact that we were very successful there. And in fact, their believing in us has paid off because we've been in New York for not going on nine weeks now, not an every night type of thing, not four times a day, you know, but curated as the audience are coming and they just keep coming. And the word, this is enabling the word of mouth which I'm sure this is exactly what happened in the East Village too. The word of mouth got around. You got to get down there. That's why Anita Nose went down there is all word of mouth. And that's how people are coming to our film through basically people started talking. You got to see this. This is authentic. They got this. They weren't there, but they got this right. And so I'm not sure I would blockade the process with hindsight 
I probably would have said, save your money. There's a pandemic coming. You don't want to spend that all that money on a film when you're going to be out of work for several years. And it's just a wonderful journey that we got to go on. And it's still happening. Exactly. Right. And yes, I mean, sometimes the old saying, right, ignorance is bliss, right? You just jump and figure it out as you go. And so much of life is like that, you know, pandemic or no pandemic, right? Like it still would have been a challenge, right, to make this happen, even in the best of circumstances. So what about you, Brian? I mean, you know, looking back, was your answer similar or would you give what advice would you give your younger self, so-called? Well, I think I could truncate some of the time if I didn't go down every rabbit hole like we did. And maybe in the next documentary, we might be able to do it a little quicker. But I think that there's very little that I I would wish different because it's turned out in ways that surprise me every time we watch the movie. The movie is almost like an organic thing. It's taken on a life of its own, and you can see that in, in the movie itself and the editing and everything because as time goes on and you start getting better at editing uh, things in a way, it can make it worse in some ways. It's frozen now in that way that we put all that effort into and found a way for it to blossom, and I'd hate to get in the way of it at all And looking back. Hey, you know what? You stuck the landing. So what's it matter? I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, the scenic route isn't the most direct route, but it is the most beautiful route and the most satisfying at the end of the day. I'll tell you what, you know, I was just so delighted to watch that, you know, for all kinds of reasons. And you did such a brilliant job of taking me there. Thank you. Thank you for that. I really felt like you took me there and I got an honest legitimate, fair glimpse, right? You know, you did a great job, strong, you know, works hard, took me there, but it was, but it also was a glimpse, right? A very true, real glimpse into this era that was just historic. <laughs> it's like, it sure is. Yeah. Movies are getting made about this time. Did you know that movies are being made about this time? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, obsession can lead to this kind of stuff, but <laughs> Anina gave us a great compliment. She said, you did it. You made art history fun. And that's something that I think people often think to themselves, well, what's so important for art to me, you know, to everyday people. And I think that's where transferring all of the obsession and the love and all of the pain and, and joy and everything onto that screen, it takes a lot out of you. You know, R Richard Hamilton used to say, People really don't know what it takes for me to make one painting. And he would struggle and work and make these just brilliant things that I've never seen before. He could make a horse and, and a rider appear with a flip of his hand. And he'd say, well, yeah, there's 50 years in that, but there's also a lot of struggle too. So we just wanted to make something meaningful. You know, we're actors and a lot of times you end up in projects where you didn't really have anything to do with that, you know, except for your part. And this was our chance to try to put something meaningful out in the world. And, and we're so glad that it's landing. Well, you know, I love that comment about making art history fun. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, that sort of gets me thinking because so many people stay away from the art world because they find it, you know, maybe intimidating or boring or perhaps too sophisticated or whatever, pretentious, maybe elitist, maybe those are the words I'm looking for. So for those folks who aren't art lovers, maybe like us, 
you know, for folks who are just, you know, curious people out there in the world that maybe don't have any real connection to the art world, why should they see your movie? Why do you think your average Joe or Jane out there in the world should see Make Me Famous? The connection that these people had to New York and revitalizing the city with their creativity and the excitement level that you'll feel getting to know an artist that you've never heard of before as he strives to become famous and all of the different ways that people either helped him or got in the way of that. Also living inside this archival where you'll see famous people interacting with people that you've never heard of before. And the famous people sort of go into the background, but the less famous come forward. And I think that there's just a lot that we're hoping that people will take away from it with creativity and just feeling that it's important that we strive for something in our lives more than just everyday living. We live in a kind of a world when Right now, especially where money is so lifted up, it's like you're successful because you have money. And we just think there's heroicism in just giving your all to your art. And and we think that the world needs a little more of that right now. Honestly, I do. I think there's inspiration in looking at a creative moment, perhaps the last most creative moment in American history, in New York City, in the 80s, in the East Village, with this group of punk, angsty youth just trying to do something with their lives amidst decrepit, decay, poverty, and yet living for something. And there's a lot of young people that maybe don't have something to live for. And do you blame them? Sometimes, if you really delve into what's happening in the world, it can get very mucky and very heavy. And this was a time when these youth were really just, instead of getting depressed, just like leaning on each other, having experiences. There was no cell phones to look at or take photos of yourself. There was no internet. These people were having community. And I think when you have community, you can have a lot of really special moments and inspiration and uplifting. And maybe, yeah, they weren't all like buddy, buddy, you know, they were like brothers and sisters, you know, they all loved each other because there was a small, it was a small group of people. It was family, right? Like you don't always, you love your family, but you don't always like them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you can still get inspiration from these artists. And I think that's why you should go to see Make Me Famous because you will be inspired when you leave. Your mind will be buzzing. It is not a film that you can sit on the couch and take a bunch of breaks. You're going to want to watch it from start to finish and engage with it. And it's going to make you think it's going to challenge you and in a good way. And you'll come out a better person. How about that? Maybe. And you'll love art again, hopefully a little bit, you know. Well, exactly. And appreciating artists. I mean, one of the things that I find super valuable about your project and that resonated with me was that it humanized these characters. You may not even know who these people are necessarily if you're just somebody out there in the world who doesn't really connect 
in the art world on a regular basis. Maybe you don't know these names, but generally speaking, I think the the myth of an artist or the stereotype of an artist is the sort of like mysterious creature, you know, uh, sort of genius, you know, maybe was toiling away, you know, in their studio. And the reality is, I mean, perhaps there are more human than most of us, right? And the reality is that that shining a light on their humanity and, you know, I think really does a great service, right, to artists that are living and working today and are, you know, certainly, you know, the history because it connects us. It's the, you see, oh, wait, right, we're all human and we're all struggling to try to realize our our dreams and our goals or whatever it is. And, in, you know, what you said, too, about the power of creativity, I think that's, you're, you're so right. I know it's so, so trendy these days to sort of catastrophize everything and, and worry about things like technology and AI and, you know, all of these things. And, you know, granted, lot to think about, a lot to understand. It's kind of crazy stuff. But maybe there's an argument here to be made that there's a great premium now on the handmade, on the human made, that human touch. Right. And that's what I love about your project, too, because you can see the hand. You know, it's clearly made by empathetic curious, smart humans. And Brian Vincent, <laughs> Heather Spore, I'm so grateful that you guys took time to come and talk about your amazing project with me on Not Real Art. Thank you for, for coming in today. Oh, it was a great pleasure. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you for having me. Now, before we go, before we go, where can people watch the movie? Uh, you know, we're, I know we got screenings in New York. I saw it in LA. Maybe it's online now. I don't know. But tell our, our listeners where they can see the movie. Well, currently we are exclusively in theaters. So the best place to find out and follow about our journey is on our website, Make Me Famous Movie. We have a page that we update regularly. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, which we also update quite regularly about any screenings upcoming, which is Make Me Famous Movie and on Twitter, Famous Art Doc. But we will be exclusively in theaters for a while. We're playing at the New Plaza Cinema and Roxy Cinema in New York right now on a limited schedule. And then in September, we're going to start bringing this out further to other cities. And hopefully we'll be back in L.A. We did get a return invitation. So, yeah, you're going to have to just kind of be patient. And why don't you reach out to the local cinema and say, hey, can you both make me famous? I want my make me famous TV. (laughs) (laughs) we're saving art cinema maybe i don't know i hope so yeah yeah no well that's i mean that is you know being patient too right i mean that is also an underappreciated value these days you know in a world of instant gratification it's like oh i actually miss the days where i was anticipating a letter in the mail like you know like how wonderful (laughs) was that right but you know the full disclosure i'm figuring out this week whether or not i'm coming out for the armory show uh, would oh, love to, you know, meet up for cocktails or something. Maybe I want to come to another screening if I can. Yes. Uh, do you guys, do you guys, what's the schedule for, do you have something brewing for the Armory show? Well, okay. Well, our next screening at New Plaza is this Sunday at 530 on the 20th of August. And we'll likely be screening again a week later. At the Roxy, we've been screening one or two times a week. So they'll just have to look for us there, but they generally give us our next screening dates in the next few days. So we'll have to wait uh, for that. But we're at the Roxy Cinema, which is a beautiful cinema, 118 seat jewel of a theater in the Roxy Hotel in Tribeca. Right on. Yes. And if we do well, 
one week, they give us another one. All right. So we always are auditioning yeah. <laughs> for the next one. But I think probably we will. Well, that's a good way to pitch it to the theaters to make sure that there's some screenings during the Armory show. There you go. There you go. Well, i tell you what, Brian, Heather, thank you so much. Best of luck. You guys are doing incredible stuff. Can you know, I this may not be a fair question to end with because you're already, I mean, you're still very much in the throes of this project, enjoying the fruits of your labor, marketing the fruits of your labor, promoting the fruits of your labor. But is the next project sort of in the back of your mind? Are you thinking about what's next? We've had a few producers step forward and say that they'd like to help make the next movie. And the thing is, I think we've decided it's going to be a documentary. And I've already been working on it with the research for a little while. Only this time we're moving back into the acting world. I reached out to a very famous actor who died years ago. And I reached out to their estate and I said how interested I was in, I had a new idea of presenting this actor in a new way. And they actually wrote me back, said that they loved the trailer and said, well, what would you do that's different? No one's done. And so I wrote them and they said that that's absolutely fantastic. So I think that we're going to go from non-famous to very famous, but I have a brand new way, I think, of presenting that for the next one. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to see your next project. It sounds wonderful. Congratulations on all your success, all your hard work to date. Please come back anytime and and share with us again anything that's on your mind, any projects you're excited about. Uh, Certainly with the next doc, we'll, we'll have you back on. But Brian Vincent, Heather Spore, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, we sure appreciate it and look forward to getting some drinks with you too. (laughs) Me too, my friend. Me too. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.